Welcome to Genius Leadership Podcast, where we discuss how to overcome everything as a leader. I'm your host, Anna Liebel, a mind shifter, helping male leaders in tech get out of the firefighting mode, become the proactive leaders they want to be, and enjoy the ride as they go. Join me every week for honest, insightful conversations with corporate, entrepreneurial, and academic leaders. We discuss their roller coaster ride of leading from their zone of genius and when they don't. If you find this show valuable, please subscribe and share it so that more of us can live a healthier and happier life. Now, let's get into the episode. Hey, genius leaders, welcome to the show. Today, I'm recording this intro on the floor of a hotel room while traveling on an Easter Sunday. <laughs> That's how we roll when we forget to do our tasks on time <laughs> and uh, our team needs the input so that the, you can get this uh, episode on time as well. I'm committed to making this show a valuable place where you can come every week and learn and reflect and become a better version of yourself. So that's what we do. Today, you'll hear a guest that has been on the show before, and that is Chaba Tov. I'll link the episode that we've had with him two years ago in the show notes, so please feel free to revisit that one or listen to it for the first time if you never heard it, because that was a brilliant conversation that I have referred to many times after multiple conversations with different people. Yeah, it has a lot of golden nuggets there. And today I wanted to bring Chaba because he knows so much on the topic that I, I get to talk to a lot of leaders in this different spaces right now, and that is diversity. There are different levels of the of diversity, some more visible than the others. And this is what we discuss with Chaba. What is cognitive diversity? Why does Chaba refer to it as the immune system of a team? Whether you need to combine that visible diversity of a team with the cognitive diversity, or is it one preceding the other, or are they opposing parts of diversity? So we're covering those topics. We're also discussing the company's comfort zone. What does that mean and what happens within that zone and outside of it? And also the comfort zone of a person where you can grow or not. There are some new thoughts for me in that conversation that just came through the reflection on what Chaba was talking. And lastly, I want to mention that at some point, Chaba even mentions that you as a company or leader should not aim for diversity. He suggests to aim for something else. So listen to the conversation to know what Chaba suggests to go for and aim for that will be followed by diversity. And without further ado, just let's dive in and enjoy and see you on the other side. Chaba. Warmest welcome to the show again. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it's been two years since you've been on a show, I think. And I I don't know how many times I've used the link to, to your episode, uh, sharing it with people when we were having different conversations because there were so many golden nuggets there. And that's why I'm bringing you back because I'm having a lot of conversations about the topic that we want to discuss today. And I don't know a better person to mind shift people on that topic than you. So thank you so much for finding time in your schedule and uh, finding energy to be here with us today. Um, limited energy, of course. No problem. <laughs> As always. <laughs> so Chava, let's talk about cognitive diversity. And to set the say, stage for that topic, let's roll to 
or like let's lift our gazes to the bigger topic of it. First, it was diversity and inclusion. Then we were talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now I'm hearing diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. D E I B. And so we're as I see that those more letters means that we're getting more acquainted to the with the topic and getting more nuances about it and breaking down the topic to make it less complicated for ourselves. Is it the right understanding or do you feel like there is something else going on? I think that is the intention behind it. I'm not sure if that's the result that we are getting. Mm. I don't think that we simplify things. I don't think that we make it more practical, to be honest, because the more labels you distribute, the more you divide people. And sometimes people want to be so unique that at the end of the day, they are alone. And when you create new labels, they should come with new instructions, like a user's manual. And we cannot just expect people to know how to behave and how to treat you know, different categories. It's something that we need to learn. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes that makes it a bit more complicated. I'm not saying that's a problem, but it does make it more complicated. So instead of simplifying, we're actually shooting ourselves on the food and making it more complicated and more divisive, as you said. I think it's, it's hard to find the balance because making it more nuanced is important. But at the same time, that is dangerous if we don't know how to talk about it. And this is, this is the pitfall that I see recently, that, that we talk a lot But most people have much more to say, and they're not willing to listen. And without meaningful conversations, we cannot really get to know each other. Yes, we can virtue signal a lot of things, but that's not going to lead to a solution, I believe. So, for example, if you come up with a new label, and I don't know what it is, and if I ask you and you get offended because I should know that, that's not going to be a good conversation. That's not going to be a good relationship. So we just have to make it you know, a two-way street. And that is what I'm missing often, the conversations. And sometimes we have to be so careful that, can I ask that question? Can I say that? Can I say that I don't know? And that just shows the complete lack of psychological safety, the political correctness. And I think that sometimes it prevents us from getting to know each other and going deeper and making it more practical. How do we listen to each other better? How can we do it? But first, I think we have to be curious. But when you have so much uncertainty around us, you know, the world is falling apart, so many things are happening, people need certainty. It's one of those psychological needs. Now, the question is, where is that certainty coming from? Is it coming from your your label? Is it coming from inside? Is it coming from another culture group that you belong to? Where is it coming from? And often that leads to this kind of binary thinking. You are with me or you are against me. Because then we have this illusion of control. That yes, that person is with me, that person is against me. But there's so many people in between. But that just means more uncertainty. And I cannot have that. So we try to simplify things. But that's not necessarily more practical. So how do we create that safety? You said a bit about the curiosity. And we can, of course, discuss how to nurture that curiosity and what does it mean on a personal level. But also, what else is there to create a safe environment for us to, to be curious about each other? So one side is that you are curious. The other side is me, the way I react to your question or our conversation. Because, you know, if you burn yourself a few times, then it's going to condition you and you're not going to ask questions. So, you know, if you try to be nice and curious and, and somebody gets offended or few people, and after that you learn, oh, I shouldn't do that. And then what is the alternative? We don't ask questions. We assume things and assumptions tend to be negative. And then we discuss those assumptions with people like us, you know, people who have common sense. And in that case, we can upgrade those assumptions to a belief. And ultimately, we manage to widen the gap instead of building a common ground. And it is difficult. And that's where cognitive diversity is so 
uncomfortable because it doesn't feel good. When two people disagree, that's a horrible feeling, but that's exactly where the potential lies for success or disaster. It depends on how much you understand yourself and how much you understand other people. And that is something that most people need to learn. Definitely, I had to. How did you have to do it? And then we'll go to the definition of cognitive diversity, since you mentioned the term now. I used to work in a hotel, and there was a really popular concierge there. And everybody loved him. And I asked him, what is your secret? How come everybody just adores you? And he said, you know what? It's so simple. Just look interested. I said, what do you mean? He said, look interested. It's even better if you are interested in people. But if you look interested and you're looking for information, you're looking for what you can learn from somebody, what you can appreciate in them, then everything changes, the quality of the conversation. And that's when you connect with people. So you improve the quality of the relationship and you also learn something new. And people feel that you are genuine, that you're interested in them. You don't want to show off. And that's when we connect. Look interesting, but at the same time, you're talking about that the, the concierge was actually having the intention of learning, which is the curiosity in a way. So it's not just pretending. There is something beneath it as well. Definitely. But that's why I said, look interested. That's the bare minimum. But if you're interested, it's even better. But let's be honest, not everybody is people-oriented. Not everybody is naturally, let's have a chat. I wasn't. I'm a very task-oriented person. And before 30, I thought that, you know, if somebody is not useful, why would I talk to them? You know, I've got stuff to do. I'm working until my 30th birthday. And this is when my wife invited everyone from Facebook. Everyone. She didn't know them, but she invited them. And one person turned up. So, oh, that's a slap in the face. But you know what? I deserved it because they invited me so many times. And I always said, no, 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 I'm working. You know, I'm busy. And people learned that for me, work was more important than them. Actions express priorities, as Gandhi said. And they learned a lesson. So there was nobody to blame. It was a wake-up call. And that's when I realized that there's something we can learn from everyone. And it is my responsibility to look for it. And when you do that, that's a whole new level of relationship. But I didn't do that before that. Sometimes you have to hurt yourself to wake up. Was it just that flip of a switch once you had that wake-up call that you just like, okay, intention set, I'm learning from every person, look for that learning. And was it a process to, to get into habit of doing that? Well, the process is to, to realize that only one person turned up and that started a whole sequence of events, like thinking about, so if I kick the bucket tomorrow, what can I remember? Nothing. Hmm, excellent. I haven't traveled. I was working. What did you do? Nothing. And then I started thinking about it. So really, are you that efficient? What were you doing exactly? And that was a horrible process. But sometimes it has to happen. Otherwise, if you're in the rat race, it's really difficult to see what else is happening. What did you make it mean for yourself in that process when you realized that you were focusing on something that truly does not really matter to you in the end of the timeline? Well, first of all, it was embarrassing because I thought I was wasting a lot of time. And at the same time, it was even worse because I realized that I hurt a lot of people and I lost a lot of people because of that. And that's not fair. Not fair on them. And not fair on me, but I deserve the punishment because at the end of the day, it was my decision. Could you rebuild any of those relationships? Some of them, probably. Not all of them. Many of them, no, I cannot. So what did you turn that into? What was the transformation from, from that point for you, for your relationships? For, and how did it affect your work as well when you started working less, quote unquote, maybe, uh, and put time into building relationships into learning from other people and so on. What did ha what happened to your work? Technically, not much. 
or at least not immediately because still I was working a lot. But I became much more curious about people. But first, I wanted to understand why I wasn't because I had to find out how come some people triggered me so much. Oh, a lot of people. Why did I feel that I don't want to be with them? And then I had to realize that they're just different. And I misunderstood a lot of things because you can see other people's behavior, but not their intention. And we just assume all those assumptions. And that's not ideal. So if I ask people, why do you do what they do? There is a logic to it. And then I have to realize that personal and cultural differences are just clashes of common senses. So just because we disagree, just because they do something else, it doesn't mean that it's wrong. It doesn't mean that I'm right. So let's find out what is the real reason behind that. And I thought there must be a reason. There must be a blueprint why people think and behave differently. And it turned out that there is. And that is something that we have to learn. It turned out that also a lot of people had the same problem. And that's how I started my company. And that's how it's now in 46 countries. So let's go to cognitive diversity. What is that? And why do we need to talk about it? Cognitive diversity is often called the immune system of a team. So the stronger your immune system is, the more resilient you are. So, you know, when you talk to someone and you have this feeling that that person has no common sense at all, they just don't get you and they're just so weird. We never think about the fact that they feel the same way about us, but for different reasons. So the level of pain and frustration is the same. The reason is different. But we also have to understand that instead of pretending that we love diversity, we have to realize, no, we don't, at least not the brain. The brain is designed to keep you safe and efficient, is designed to keep you in your comfort zone, and it kind of forces you to hang out with people who are like you, you know, people who have common sense. That's how we can save energy. So if I know that this is the starting point, I also know what to do about it. Because then I realize that the more I understand myself, the more I understand other people who think and behave differently, the more predictable they become, the more familiar they become. And now my brain likes it, but not before that. Because otherwise, diversity means unpredictability. And that is the last thing that the brain wants. And that's, why, that's the reason why homophilic diversity is insanely powerful in team dynamics. We it's like and trust. For people who have never heard it before. So it, it sounds like a disease, but it just means that we like and trust people who are similar to us, especially inside. And we have plenty of case studies to show that, that often you have a bunch of different looking people in a team, but deep inside, they are scarily similar sometimes. So a team can be, can be individually really, really smart, but collectively blind. Because when you have to employ somebody, why would you employ someone who disagrees with you, who you find annoying or suspicious? You don't need that hassle. So we end up with people like ourselves, which can be comfortable, but also dangerous when it comes to creativity and strategy. So when we look at diversity, most companies focus on the visible layer, like identity differences. And that is really, really important from an equity and equality perspective. Because often, those are the first hurdles. That if you are a woman or you look different, that can be the first problem. But teams don't break down because they look different. They break down because they drive each other crazy, because they drain themselves. And that's the real problem. But how can you do that? How can you optimize something if you don't understand how it works, if you don't know how to measure it and visualize it? And especially if you don't even know about this topic, because you read about it a lot, in magazines, that diversity is good for the business. No, it's not. At least not at its own. You have to make it work. Inclusion is a natural, not a natural consequence of diversity. But here's the problem, that if you buy, for example, a laptop because you want to send emails, you buy the best one, but you don't know about Wi-Fi, then you try to send the email and it doesn't work. You can come to the conclusion that, ah, you just wasted money. This laptop is fake news. No, you just didn't know about that invisible force, the Wi-Fi. 
if you if you are aware of it, you connect to it, you can send the email. And I've seen the same problem in this field. They read about it, they don't have the instructions, and they think, you know what, that doesn't make sense. And from their experience, from their perspective, you can argue with that. And that's why we talk about this topic. And that's why conversations like this are important. You mentioned that the visible uh, diversity is important, right? Just to start eliminating those most obvious hurdles. My experience in working in the men-dominated uh, industries, for example, those uh, women around me who have built their careers, who have been there for a while in, in the times when they would be the only woman uh, in the whole department, for example, they have become a man on heels, let's say. So that's the thing. They, they did have a bit of a diversity that way, right? There was a woman uh, on the team, but she had to behave like a man to, to earn her right to be there, to stay there. Yep. So is there any critical mass that we need to have on that visible level in a way? Or is it really about directly going into the depth of the cognitive diversity and learning how to navigate those differences so that they are not liability, but actually an asset for the team and the company? So it depends how you define diversity, because you can buy the same car in different colors. Do you have a lot of different cars? Not really. Mm-hmm. So that's, it depends on the experience, because there are two options. One is what you mentioned, that, that you were different, but you had to conform to the same norms. So there was cognitive diversity, probably, maybe, but there was no inclusion and no psychological safety. And the further away you are from the norms, the more negative consequences you have to bear sometimes. So if you think about a person, how difficult is it to expand your comfort zone, to change your habit? It's very difficult. Now imagine that on a team level, because technically culture is just a group habit. It's a group behavior most people conform to. So even a company has a comfort zone, not just a person, even a company. And the comfort zone is the behavior that is rewarded and expected. You can push the boundaries. Maybe it's accepted, maybe it's tolerated. But if you are really different, it is punished. And that's exactly what we can measure. The mindset gap between what is natural to you and what is normal and expected around you. We can measure how much you have to pretend in order to be accepted. So the size of the comfort zone in a company is pretty much the size of the inclusion. So you can have cognitive diversity. You can be different, but if you don't have a voice, you cannot speak up, it's lost. You lose the power of diversity. So they're not benefiting from it, and probably you burn out really quickly. So often we get the the requests from companies and they say, we want to increase diversity and always have the same answer. Please don't. And they said, what are you talking about? I said, no, aim for inclusion. Because if you get that right, diversity is going to increase. But diversity without inclusion is going to turn into painful liability. And a lot of people refer to that McKinsey report that ethnically diverse companies are 35% more efficient than homogeneous ones, for example. And then they see that as a proof that we need more ethnicities, obviously. But the problem with the big data is that if you torture it long enough, it can confess anything you want. And usually those people don't read the whole report because it says clearly that's not causality, it's correlation. But if you go deeper and you know that the number one trait of high-performing teams is psychological safety, then it's very safe to assume that those companies are much more inclusive, much more psychologically safe. That's why they perform better. And that's why they attract more diversity, not the other way around. So how do we nurture that inclusion? You said aim for inclusive inclusion instead of going for diversity because that way it comes automatically. How can a company start looking at that and improve on that matter? Step one is 
you have to understand yourself better. And it sounds like a cliche, but it's not. Because 95% of our actions are driven by values and beliefs we are not even aware of. But when something goes against them, it triggers a really intense emotional response and we just react violently sometimes. And it is so obviously wrong that we cannot even explain it. So that's not a good start. But at the same time, we think that you are really objective and logical. That's just not true. It doesn't matter how much you reflect on something you're not aware of. You can discuss the symptoms, but not the root cause. And then step two, you can learn about other people. And this is what we call the uncommon sense. Because cultural differences are just clashes of common senses. And if that's how you approach the topic, then you can remove this illusion of superiority that I know the truth, I'm above you. No, 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 no. Hold on. If there's a disagreement, there's a reason why the other person says something. So let's find out what they can see you cannot, what they know that you don't. And then if you can see the same situation from different perspectives, then you can make better decisions. That's when you turn diversity into inclusion. But that's difficult. But this is where the quality of the questions are really important. So moving away from this binary thinking, which is often the root cause of this most of the problems, let's look at it as a sliding scale because life is not black and white. So if you ask a different question, instead of who is right, you or me, let's ask, is there an even better way of doing things? If that's the question you ask, nobody can lose. And probably that's going is to be really much more so productive. When there is ego and when can people take it personally in a way that this better way sounds more like closer to that person's way or something like this? It depends if they mean it or they don't. Because most people want to be right. They don't want to get things right. Because you're right, the ego is fragile. The ego wants to be seen as good. So we have to protect it. And that's why, to me, self-inclusion is the key concept. Because if you know exactly who you are and what you stand for, then you don't have to bully anyone. You don't have to hide to feel safe. Then you can say that, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I'm sorry, could you help me? Or I can even say that, you know what, Anna, your solution is better. Or could you please explain it? You have to be really confident to do that. So we have to work on that because you know that hurt people hurt people. And if you cannot really accept yourself, it's very difficult to be inclusive towards others. And that's how we build inclusion and psychological safety, and we power through difficult situations, when you prove it to each other. Not when you sweep everything under the rug of political correctness, that we don't have any problems, we love everyone. No, we don't. When something happens, what, how do you react? How do you deal with a failure, a disagreement? That's how we build it. So do you have any suggestions on how people can learn about themselves and build that self-awareness so that the rest of the process becomes easier? I mean, the wonderful assessment, absolutely unbiased opinion that, you know, Global Disc is the one to do that, that goes into the three different layers of the identity. So we can compare them, the mindset gap between you and another person, you and your environment, because everything is relative. It's nice to talk about, you know, psychometric assessments and colors that, yeah, blue, I'm red, fantastic. So what happened? Nothing. We managed to widen the gap. Once you learn about your preferences, then you can actively work on your comfort zone. So we have an interactive learning platform designed for that. Mm -hmm. Because if something is rigid, it breaks. So instead of changing, let's level up. It's more positive. And to me, it's much more meaningful. I mean, cognitive diversity is given. Inclusion is what we are working on. And mm -hmm. you test it through challenges. And that means that instead of learning how to be mediocre, how to conform to the same norms, how to be good at everything, we can double down our strengths and we can find complementary partners. So that is step one, because otherwise, you know, if I'm really driven and fast-paced and I have to work with someone who is much more process-oriented and introverted, then the first impression is that, oh, why is so slow and lazy? 
But they would see me as, what's wrong with you? Why are you rushing so much? Why are you so pushy? So, you know, if this is the first impression on both sides, that's not good. How would you make it work? But once we understand that they need my drive to get things done, to start them, but actually they are the ones who can finish them and they are the ones who can spot mistakes that I could never notice, then we created a high-performing team. But naturally, we don't do that. So if we can focus on our strength and we find complementary partners, that is step one. And then when you have meetings, if there's no conflict or there's no disagreement at all, that's not necessarily a good sign. Usually there are two reasons for that. One is that people are way too similar or there's no psychological safety at all. And everything is just brewing beneath the surface. A bit of a side question here. I've heard in a in an audiobook I was listening recently to the, uh, this idea of growing or that your growth is happening outside of your comfort zone. We've mm-hmm. heard it so many times. And the authors were challenging that idea, as in when you're out of your comfort zone, your sympathetic nervous system is activated and you are in that freeze or fight mode, survival mode. And that is not so conductive and not the best environment for learning, for real. So they argue, like their argument was that the real development and learning happens within the comfort zone when people are focusing on their strength, when they are in a calm uh, state where the parasympathetic system uh, is dominating, and then they actually can draw conclusions, learn and leverage those learnings. What's your take on that? It sounds like a typical binary thinking. Yeah, in your comfort zone or outside of it. Mm. I think that's just wrong, which is binary as well. So I think the real question is, <laughs> how much are you pushing your limits? How far away are yeah, from your comfort zone? But even if you look at the flow concept, when do you get into flow? When you have the right amount of challenges and support, how do you get into the flow state? If you listen to, for example, Stephen Kotler's audiobook, then there are a few factors. First, you have to focus on one task. You have to have the freedom to make decisions. You have to get the feedback back. And also, if you think that you are capable of 100%, try to do 4% more. So that's already definitely outside of your comfort zone, way outside of it. Because even when you're pushing 100%, that's not comfort. So it's 104%. How they measure it, that's a different story. But this is what the research shows, that you have to push it. And that's where flow happens, not in the comfort zone. So I would ask, how much are you pushing it? How far away are you from your comfort zone? Mm-hmm. Is it a learning zone or is it a panic zone? Not the same thing. So we can define it maybe as those t- different layers, right? Yeah. Like the uh, the goal in which you're shooting. <laughs> yeah. So you have the comfort zone and then outside of is the layer of the growth when you're still kind of not in that panic mode. And then when you go too much out of the comfort zone, then it's the panic mode where you can't really perform and learn either. Exactly. That's the reason why we have the Quest, which are the interactive learning platforms. So when you take the assessment, we learn about your preference. And based on your result, you get access to the right Quest. And it's not like a boring online course, but everything happens in real life. It's experiential. So you do what you normally do, but you would do it slightly differently, depending on the task or the mission that you get. You get a different outcome, a different feeling. You come back, you answer some reflective questions, and then you can unlock the next one. And there are 21 missions. So by the time you pass through all of them, your comfort zone is going to be pretty awesome. But this is a graduate process, step-by-step, designed for your result. That's why you need the right one. Because if you choose the wrong quest, it's going to challenge you too much or not enough. I'm thinking if if we want to help the listeners to start practicing based on what we have discussed today, of course, the first thing that they can do is to to measure what where, where they are as a team uh, or also as a person to begin with, so that they know their point A. Once they have done that, 
or if they cannot afford it, for example, at the moment? What could be the, the actionable steps to start? Well, maybe some kind of better questions to ask, as you, we discussed with you before. Our brain is like Google. Uh, it gives you the answer to what you you ask. And yeah. if you ask bad questions, you get bad answers. Uh, so what could be the level up in the questions for people to to start exploring the topic and understanding themselves and their peers better? I mean, the easiest and the cheapest way is to hang out with annoying people. And when I say annoying people, I mean, at least people that you don't usually hang out. So even if you work in a big company, have a lunch with someone that you usually don't hang out with. Try to learn about them, what they do exactly, not just professionally, but maybe personally. Talk to people who disagree with you, who belong to different groups, different political parties, different way of eating. They support different football teams. You know, somebody who, who's in a different culture group, because we all belong to 15 or 20 culture groups at the same time. Country of origin is a tiny fraction of that. So, you know, we have plenty of options. Learn about something that you're not familiar with, because the more you learn about that, the more synergy you can create, because your brain is going to like it. Finally, something I recognize. But if you just pretend that I love diversity, I celebrate it, that's not exactly true for most people, at least. I think at some point in my life, I actually challenged myself too much and hang hang out with a bit too many people who irritated me. So that was just too much new data to process. <laughs> so dear genius leaders, that's a might be an invitation for you for April. Find someone who irritates you and um, ask them for a coffee, for a walk, for lunch, and uh, explore what's going on. Why are they rubbing you? What is what is different? How can you understand them better? I usually suggest in the trainings I do to assume the best intentions and remind yourself that we all do the best we can with what we have. So whenever people irritate you, that helps me to open my mind when I'm thinking, okay, they're actually coming with the best intention right now, especially with giving their, their background. So how can I understand their background better to really believe that that's, or to, to really understand their best intentions and, and see what, how we can close the gap there. Maybe they actually suggesting something absolutely fantastic. And it's something in my background that closes me off from that idea. And we don't get to create together. So I hope that you'll take on this invitation, dear genius leaders, and um, explore that. Um, and let us know <laughs> whether your lunch ended up in a fight or you actually learned something <laughs> uh, from that conversation. Chava, you're shaking your head. What's going on? You're organizing an intellectual fight club. <laughs> but you also mentioned something really important, that that's the reflection. Like, you know, Ray Dalio said that pain plus reflection equals progress. So a lot of people have the pain part. And yes, we can hang out with people, but if we don't reflect, we don't learn, there's no progress. And that's the most difficult part. And this is what I, where I landed with, with this topic of learning when, within or outside of your comfort zone. Uh, for me, it was about, yeah, you need to get out of your comfort zone to get new data, but then you need to get back into that comfort to actually have the yeah. capacity to process what, what has happened. How yeah. do I make sense out of it? How do I add it to my worldview? And... Uh, make it somehow useful for me. So that's what you're talking about. The pain is happening that in that 104% circle, let's say. And then there you're still maybe one foot into the comfort zone and you have the capacity to reflect. And that's where progress happens. It depends on what kind of meaning you attach to that, the pain. Because if you look at pain and discomfort as a wrapping paper on the gift of learning, then it's easier to tolerate it because I know that it might be uncomfortable, but also positive. But otherwise automatically the brain would reject it. Pain, avoid it. But if I know that pain equals growth, because that's my definition, then I'm going to be much more willing to do that. So it's really pain about paying attention to your definitions as well. 
Of course. Because, you know, the quality of the definitions create the expectations. And if I just reject somebody because they're different, then that's my reality. But if I know that there's something to learn mm-hmm. and ultimately it serves me, then it can be useful. That's why I think that we have the one of the best jobs in the world because it's really fulfilling. It's not about selling anything. It's about breaking down barriers within and between people. And that's really fulfilling. Sometimes frustrating, but ultimately <laughs> I couldn't imagine a better profession to be honest. I agree. I wouldn't change, even though it's tough, <laughs> to, especially to build a business around it. But uh, I love this part so much. Chapa, thank you so much. Always fun to connect and uh, learn from you. That happens every single time we, we're talking. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. See you soon. Genius leaders, and let me know how it went with your annoying lunch. <laughs> thank you for listening and bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Genius Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, hit the subscribe button. Please rate, review, and share to help more people discover the show and become the better leaders. For more conversations about living in your zone of genius, connect with me on LinkedIn. Genius Leadership is an honors conversation about leading yourself and others. And it is my honor to be a guide in overcoming everything.